I feel like it's been uh, a while. It's been four weeks since I am back uh, to preaching. Thank you so much for your grace and patience as our family was recovering from COVID. And we're in the midst of, hopefully, this Sunday, uh, transitioning to our new home finally. Pray for us. It's been a hard, long road, and it's good to be back uh, to be able to share with you God's word today. In 2019, the infamous study released by the Pew Research Center uh, shocked evangelicals or Bible-believing Christians into panic mode. The headline, which read, Christianity in the U.S. in sharp decline. Put into perspective what many have been assuming all along. That in the growing tide of secularism and neo-sexual revolution in our society, Christianity is indeed increasingly, more than ever, being viewed as outdated, judgmental, close-minded, and even hateful by most Americans. Hence, when the Wall Street Journal and other news outlets reported data which showed a seismic rendering of the American population shifting away from Christianity and toward religious disaffiliation by the droves, it finally confirmed what some did not want to admit for years. We are living in post-Christian America. Studies showed every age group, racial group, and region of the country is less Christian than a decade ago. And for the first time in history, the percentage of Protestants fell under the 50% mark to 43% of the population. Well, little wonder when a global pandemic shut down normalcy with its lockdown restrictions and mandates, preventing churches from gathering and causing many churches to pivot to live stream or pre-recorded sermons, or in our case, in our earlier months, Zoom meetings. Uh, back then, it was such a joy, but also Zoom fatigue set in really quickly. And it, it lasted longer than any of us could have imagined, didn't it? It, COVID-19, hence accelerated the downward trend of church attendance and religious disaffiliation further. As the pandemic progressed, when churches were allowed in-person gatherings again, with restrictions indoors and outdoors, the Barna Research Group estimates in-person church attendance is roughly 30 to 50% lower than it was before the pandemic. Some estimate as many as one-third of churchgoers, that's one in three, stopped attending church altogether during the recent pandemic. And to add to the fire, authors Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen note in their book, Rediscovered Church, the fear of contracting COVID-19 might be the least of the reasons that convince many Christians to stay away from church. Debates over masks, vaccines, and much else divided the church members, trapped in their homes and glued to their social media feeds and their favorite cable uh, TV news outlets, filled with dire warnings and conspiracy theories. But that's not all, was it? Recent elections for Americans have been more divisive. Same goes for causes of racial unrest, which stirred even further division and tension among Christians and churches. Clear lines were drawn between Christians in regards to who falls into what theological tribe and categories, woke, liberal, Christian nationalist, or racist. And a spectrum was popularized with good intentions to categorize how deep in one is. Are you a one, two, three, or four? Mind you, these labels are labels that Christians identify or accuse one another of. So much pre-assumptions, lack of grace, unyielding opinions, and sources of church division. And no wonder so many churches are continuing to struggle and decline. 
No wonder so many are tuned out, turned off, and disengaged. Plus, the pandemic made it easier than ever before to tune into other pastors' online sermons without guilt and to skip their own churches altogether, hasn't it? Who would know the difference, after all? Who would know whether someone actually listened to a sermon or not? After all, we're all worried about the safety of our family, aren't we? We're protecting our immediate family. We have to abide by the COVID regulations of the county, don't we? We are good, law-abiding citizens, exemplary Christian neighbors, aren't we? Well, many people have various reasons to not go back to the church, don't they? In fact, many churches make it so they don't expect some of their own members to ever come back. They've launched virtual churches and hired virtual pastors, multiple services to cater to the needs of the people. No need to wake up early on Sundays. No need to put on your Sunday best. No need to search for a parking spot at church. No need to make small talk over bad coffee with the person whose politics disgust you. And many more reasons. I got some reasons to not go to church today. So then, the lingering question in our minds, is there a future for church? Is there a future for church? Today, we're starting a new three-part sermon series on the church, inspired by the book I mentioned earlier titled Rediscover Church by authors Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen. Three parts, because we will take three, three weeks, nine sermons in total, throughout the year to study the what and the who of what the Bible teaches the church is. Some questions for us to consider in light of what was shared about the state of the church in America. Again, is there a future? Is there a purpose for the church? Is there hope for the newly planted New Covenant Baptist Church? We're only one year and a couple months old. Does your investment your time, your service, your financial contribution, your sacrifice, your potential exposure even right now to COVID when you gather for services and community groups and fellowship lunches, your discipling, your evangelism to the church, do they all have any returns, any gains? Does our work, our prayers for the church mean anything? I pray for many of you the answer is resoundingly simple and clear because I believe and I hope many of you also believe the answer is yes, 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 and yes. Amen? Over 2,000 years of church history proves it so. Over 4,000 years of Christian heritage substantiates it so. But more than anything, brothers and sisters, God's word promises it so. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Amen? Furthermore, Luke 133 says, And he, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Why should Christians return to church and continue to commit to the local church? Why should we persevere as the church? Why should Christians regard the church gathering as essential? Because we belong to God. We are the people of God. Because Christ gave us his body and made us a body of believers. The church is who, born again, blood-bought Christians are. This is our very identity. We are who we are because we've been called by God, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. We are the church. We gather. We believe. We grow. We proclaim and protect. We equip. We serve. And we cooperate because that is who we are, the church. Amen? 
Although on most normal Sundays at NCBC, we believe the best way Christians can grow and the best way we can learn to know and obey God's word is through expositional preaching, uh, which is when the preacher walks through the passage of Scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The point of the message is the point of the passage. The elders are thought spending a few weeks this year with these topical messages to teach you the biblical doctrine or the theology of the church, what theologians call ecclesiology would be necessary and helpful to remind us of the importance of the church and of our gatherings in light of all that's going on in our society and our churches. So we'll spend the first part of this series for three weeks, the next, uh, this week included, and for the next two weeks, asking and answering these questions. What is the church? Who can belong to a church? And do we really need to gather? What is the church? Who can belong? And do we really need to gather? And again, the book Rediscovered Church will be a guide for our messages on Sundays and hopefully discussions in our community groups. So today, in answering the first question of our series, what is the church, I want to share with you three biblical truths of what the Bible says a church is. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. The church is, point number one, God's purpose to display his glory. God's purpose to display his glory. Point number two, God's people set apart. God's people set apart. And point number three, God's instrument, God's instrument for gospel proclamation. God's instrument for gospel proclamation. I pray that as we study this series that we will be reminded anew the privilege we have as Christians to be a part of Christ's church. I pray that some of you will rediscover your love for the church and recommit to prioritizing the church. I pray some of you will perhaps discover for the first time, maybe you didn't know it yet, just how beautiful and full of awe the church is and come to know the beautiful and awesome Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. So point number one, what is the church? The church is God's purpose to display his glory. Let's first start with a definition. This is a long definition, so you could write it down or you don't have to, but just listen carefully. A church is a group of Christians who assembles as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King to affirm one another as citizens through ordinances and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. One more time, I'm going to repeat it. A church is a group of Christians who assembles or gathers as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King to affirm one another's uh, citizenship, membership, through the ordinances, baptism, and Lord's Supper, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world, following the teachings and examples of the elders. Now, that definition seems very complex and a bit clunky. This is straight out of the book. Uh, But that's why we are spending the next nine weeks examining what all that means. So again, don't worry about getting everything today. Today, I just want to wrap our minds and our hearts around why the church is so important, why the church is essential, and why it ought to be important to us today, right now. The fact is, in our day, in addition to the various reasons why so many find the church unappealing or unattractive, as I mentioned in the introduction, countless bad experiences of so many unhealthy, oftentimes unbiblical, unfaithful churches have caused churchgoers to determine the church as irrelevant and a waste of time. 
But can Christians do well with God without the church? Lehman and Hansen says in their book, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. A Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. So, again, is it possible for Christians to neglect the church and be vibrant Christians, even a true Christian? Well, in order to answer those questions, we need to think carefully about what the Bible teaches about the church. And what we find in the scripture is that the church is far from optional. In other words, the church is not optional, but that the church is central, central, all-important to God's plan. As theologian John Stott says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. And as Pastor Mark Dever says, the doctrine of the church is of the utmost importance. It is the most visible part of Christian theology, and it is vitally connected with every other part. And a serious departure from the Bible's teachings about the church normally signify other more central misunderstandings about the Christian faith. In other words, if you don't understand what the church is according to the Bible, you don't understand Christianity. You don't understand the Christian faith if you don't understand what the Bible teaches about the church. When you see the church as it should be according to the scriptures, you see the mysterious purpose of God's redemption revealed through the church. So two subpoints for the first point, So point number one, the church is God's idea from the beginning through both Old and New Testaments to reveal God's holiness. The church is God's idea from the beginning in the Old and New Testaments to reveal God's holiness. And so point number two, the church images God's glory most specifically by revealing Christ. So let's talk about those subpoints briefly. Subpoint number one, the church is God's idea from the beginning from the Old Testament to the New, the truth is, although many Christians see the establishment of the church only in the New Testament, when we think of the church, we only think about the New Testament, the truth is, in examining the scriptures, we see the church is God's idea starting in the Old Testament. Dever, again, argues the shape of the visible church today bears a clear continuity, though not identity, with the visible people of God in the Old Testament. So, if you want to understand the church in full richness in God's real truth, we must start from the Old Testament. Dr. Wayne Grudem says it another way. The process whereby Christ builds the church is just a continuation of the pattern established by God in the Old Testament. Simply said, if you want to understand God of the Bible, look at God's purposes from the beginning. Look at God's people. God's eternal plan has always been, it's never changed, has it? Has always been to display his glory, not just through individuals, but through a corporate body. Several years ago, the esteemed biblical theologian Justin Bieber popularized a comment, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. If you go to Taco Bell, that doesn't make you a taco. Do you guys know the famed, esteemed biblical theologian Justin Bieber? He really said that. Well, the Bible teaches us something entirely contrary. From the first pages of the Bible, it teaches to be a God-fearer is to be a part of God's people. In creation, God created not one person, but two. And the two people had the ability and the joy to reproduce and multiply. In Noah's flood, God saved not one person, but a number of families. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, God promises that Abraham's descendant would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand at the seashore. 
In Exodus, God dealt not only with Moses, but with the nation of Israel, 12 tribes comprised of hundreds of thousands of people yet bearing one corporate identity. In Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God gave laws and ceremonies that would be worked out not only in the lives of individuals, but also in the life of the whole people. We'll talk about more of how the idea of God's distinct people, Israel, the Old Testament, carries over to the New Testament church, a new covenant community in point two. But for now, again, I want to emphasize that the idea uh, that the church is central to God's ultimate purpose for humanity is written and found all throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel is called God's son, Exodus 4.22. His spouse, Ezekiel 16.6-14. The apple of his eyes, Deuteronomy 32.10. His vine, Isaiah 5, 1-7. His flock, Ezekiel 34. And in each of these names, what God is doing is he is foreshadowing the work that he will eventually do through Christ and his church. So if you want to appreciate what the church is of the New Testament, you need to understand what the church is and how God unfolds and reveals that amazing plan from the Old Testament. Subpoint point number two, the church images God's glory most specifically in Christ. Simply put, we see God's and how he preserves a holy lineage, how he requires of them holy laws to be a set-apart, distinct people, Israel. And he calls them into a covenant, doesn't he? Where God's faithfulness, holiness, and goodness is proved over and over and over again, despite their faithlessness, despite their rebellion, despite their failure to uphold their end of the covenant? For what purpose does God do this? Over and over again, prove his own faithfulness. Why? What is the purpose? What is the reason? Well, according to Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, if you have your Bibles, please open it up there because it's such an important passage. Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11, which says this. Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, says this. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness, access, and confidence through faith in him. Amen? It is through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the eternal redemption purpose of God is realized or revealed in Christ Jesus. Amen? What I mean is, if you want to know that God is real, there's brothers and sisters who are questioning whether God is real, that God is true. If you want to know what God is like, and you want to know Jesus really died for sinners and rose again, look at the history of his people. Look at his church throughout all time, throughout all generation, throughout the globe. Look at this very gathering. Hear the testimonies of people completely transformed, wholly indebted to the manifold glory of God through Christ. You'll hear as you talk to the members of this church different background stories. You'll hear the diverse ways individuals came to know this God of the Bible. But all, every single true born-again Christian member of the church would all point to one Savior. Jesus Christ, who is our boldness, who is our access, who is our confidence in faith. Not our works, not our merits, not our gifts, not anything of ourselves, in ourselves, 
but what God has done in and through us. That is the church. That is what we sing about. That is our testimony. Amen? God is good. God is gracious. God has done it. God has shown himself to us in Christ Jesus. To him be the glory forever and ever. Hallelujah. Which moves us to point two. What is a church? Point number two. God's people set apart. God's people set apart. I shared with you in point one that the idea of the church is central to the Bible from the Old Testament to the New because it displays, it reveals God's glory. And so let's talk more specifically how that is the case, and we'll do this through two subpoints: the universal church and the local church. The universal church and the local church. Let's first talk about the universal church. The word church shows up, again, all throughout scriptures, old and the new, in the New Testament over a hundred times. But again, the church's origin is rooted in the Old Testament since the beginning. Uh, as such, there are several instances in the Old Testament that God thought of his people as a church, people assembled for the purpose of worshiping God. And to help us understand the nature of the church specifically, I want to share with you what the church is not, and a church is definitely not a building. It is incorrect to say when you walk by a building, wow, that's a nice church, because that's not a New Testament idea. In fact, as a church plant, this reality is confirmed because as New Covenant Baptist Church, we are NCBC despite the fact that we are meeting in the building of Twinbrook Community Church. If we happen to, in the Lord's will, move next month, I don't know, to some other elementary school or some area, we will still continue to be New Covenant Baptist Church. Why? Because the church is not a building. It is a people, and that has always been the case. Two primary Hebrew words refer to God's people in the Old Testament, Edah and Kahal. The translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, use the Greek word ekklesia to translate the word Kahal nearly 100 times, but never uh, to translate Edah. For the word Edah, they usually use the Greek term synagogue, which is used only once in the New Testament to refer to the church. So simply put, whether Kahal in Hebrew or ekklesia in Greek, the idea remains consistently throughout the Bible, old and the new. The words refer to God's distinct, set-apart people who have gathered. And the rich association between the assembly of God and the distinct people of God, Israel, carries over to the New Testament, Ecclesia, the church, the new covenant community of Christ. Again, I am emphasizing what another theologian, John Hammett, says. For the New Testament concepts like the church, the most important background is not its etymology or ancient Greek usage, but the Old Testament. What I'm saying is the origin of the church is not Greece, it's not Rome, but it's the Garden, the Garden of Eden. Well, then now you know what a church is, that it is an assembly of God's people. You should know some of its distinctions. How is the church of the Old Testament different from the church of the New Testament? God's people in the Old Testament are ethnically distinct. They were the nation of Israel, Whereas in the New Testament, they are ethnically mixed. In the Old Testament, they live under their own government with God-given laws. In the New Testament, they live among the rulers of the nations. In the Old Testament, they are required to circumcise their male offsprings. In the New Testament, they are required to baptize all believers. Continuities between Israel and the New Covenant community are more debated, and different theologians hold to differences in interpretations. Nevertheless, Though Israel and the church are not identical, they are, in fact, closely related. They are related through Jesus Christ. Verses like Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 is one example. So let me read it for you. It says this. 
Remember that you were at time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Israel was called to be the Lord's servant, but was unfaithful to him. Jesus, on the other hand, who was a faithful servant, fulfills what the people of God, the nation of Israel, could not do. The temples of Solomon and Ezra all pointed toward Jesus Christ, whose body constitutes the supreme earthly tabernacle for God's spirit. We also find that the land of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem, points toward the redemption of the whole earth. And also we see that the heaven, heaven itself, is referred to as the new Jerusalem. You see the eternal congregation is made of people of every nation, tribe, and tongue which fulfills the promise given to us regarding the 12 tribes of Israel, according to Revelation 7. And the law of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ, according to Matthew 5, 17. Christ is the fulfillment of all that Israel points to, according to 2 Corinthians 1, 2. And the church, of course, is Christ's body. At the very least, Dever again says, it must be said that God has consistently had a plan to glorify his name through groups of people that he specially chose and takes as his own. That is why in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, it says, We, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, are you getting the sense the church is very important? The church should be regarded as important to Christians because it's important to Christ. Christ founded the church, Matthew 16, 18. He purchased it with his blood, Acts 20, 28. He intimately identifies himself with the church, Acts 9, 4. The church is the body of Christ, as I shared, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 1, 22, to name a few. The church is also the dwelling place of his Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. The church is the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world, Ezekiel 36, 22. And finally, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself, according to Luke 24, 46 through 48 and Revelation 5, 9, which will talk more about how the church proclaims the gospel. But before we move on, again, I want you to understand the difference. The church I've been referring to up to this point, I've been speaking about the universal church. The universal church is a way of talking about all true Christians from all times and all locations. The universal church is one we can't see now with our eyes, but God can. And one day, the universal church and his church throughout all generations will be gathered in one place together people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And on that day, Jesus returns. We will be resurrected bodily with him, together with him, one with him, worshiping him together, and that's the universal church. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, uses the most intimate of earthly relationship to express the relationship between Christ and his church. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. This reality, in other words, is mind-blowing. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
In other words, brothers and sisters, the love within a covenant marriage between one man and one wife points to an even greater, more amazing love and oneness between the church and Christ. Now, we talked a lot about the universal church. Basically, everything I talked about up to this point was about the universal church. Now, let me talk about the local church. There are many times in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, how the word church is used in a universal sense. But most references of the church in the New Testament have the local church in mind. Okay, So whether that's the church in Ephesus, Corinth, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, there's so many references in the New Testament that teaches us about the local church. And what we come to learn through the New Testament teaching is that the local church is more than just an assembly, more than just a gathering of people. There's much more. So earlier I defined what a church is. Now let me narrow that down and define what a local church is. Again, this is the first sermon in this series, so just try to get it. You don't have to try to memorize it or anything, but here's the definition of a local church. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through the gospel, preaching, and gospel ordinances. One more time. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now, with that, let me move on to the third and final point. What is a church? The church, especially the local church, is point number three, God's instrument for gospel proclamation. God's instrument for gospel proclamation. In church history, particularly through the Reformation, the Reformers noted two marks of a true church. Two marks that identifies what a church is. Number one, the right preaching of God's word. And number two, the right administration of the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. Uh, You have a church that rightly preaches God's word faithfully, and you have a church that rightly administers baptism as an entrance into church membership and rightly administers the Lord's Supper as the regular family meal of the church, that church is a true church. So a gathering of Christians at a college ministry, that is not a church. A church is one that rightly preaches the word of God and rightly administers the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. As long as we, New Covenant Baptist Church, faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus, Our local church, New Covenant Baptist Church, is an embassy of heaven. It is a sanctioned outpost of the kingdom of heaven within the city of man. It represents and speaks for Jesus' kingdom. In Matthew 16, 19 and Matthew 18, 18, Jesus gives the church the keys of the kingdom. Where Jesus says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, what these verses are saying is Jesus gives kingdom authority to the local church to represent and speak for God's kingdom. I want us to know the main point here in this point, brothers and sisters, that we have such an amazing and awesome privilege to proclaim the good news of Jesus' eternal kingdom. As we get to oversee one another's profession of faith, as we get to know them, as we get to disciple them in the word of God. What a joy, what a gift, what a privilege that we get to steward the good news of Jesus Christ. And what is the good news of Jesus Christ? The gospel, the very proclamation that we stand for, we live for, we die for. It's the news that God, who is holy, who is unlike any other God, created the world in love. To display his glory and for our joy. 
Yet man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to distrust God and disobey God's word, mistakenly thinking that we could be gods unto ourselves. Man continually chose sin rather than trusting God, and as a result, man was separated from God on a consequential and eventual path toward death, judgment, and eternal punishment. For a holy God cannot be at one with sinful man, for a just God must punish sin. But God, but God, but God had a plan from the very beginning to save a people from their sins and atone or make right their broken relationship with God in order that we can once again be united to God, be one with God. And that plan, what was that plan? It was to send Jesus, the Son of God, to this world who would humble himself and give up his glory for a temporary time being in order to take upon flesh as truly God and truly man. So that Jesus may live the life that we could not live, a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, a sinless life, and for him to die the death that we should have died on the cross as our substitute in our place for our sins, to take upon himself the wrath, the judgment, the punishment of God that we deserve, our unrighteousness was placed on him, and Jesus on the cross fully satiated, satisfied God's wrath on sin, who knew no sin, and became sin on our behalf. He died, he was buried, they thought it was done. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, defeating sin, Satan, and death forever. Sins of the past, present, and future for all of us who would repent of our sins and believe in him. And he ascended into heaven, back to the Father, to bring us home when he returns. And he's inviting us today, right now, this moment. Anyone who would repent and believe and trust in him, can experience new life as his people, as his bride, as his church. Brothers and sisters, until he returns or brings us home to the eternal congregation, we hope in this sin-sick and darkened world with true hope and certain hope that we have eternal life in him forevermore. If there is anyone here who do not know Jesus, who do not proclaim, profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today, as you hear these words preached, the Lord Jesus, the Father and Maker of all things, is saying to you, repent. Turn from holding on to the things of this world. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. And trust in him with your whole life. I would love to talk to you if you want to know more about how to follow this Jesus. At the close of service, I'll be standing at this door. Philip, our service leader, will be standing at another door. Pastor Jeremy will be standing somewhere. Please, talk to one of us. Don't leave this place without talking to somebody about how to follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as I look around, I cannot help but be, get teary-eyed uh, thinking about and looking out to you. Our church was planted during the year of the pandemic, 2020. And since the Lord has established New Covenant Baptist Church, our membership has doubled. And I see a lot of new faces today. I am so thankful. And I can guarantee it is not the work of any person of this church, including myself, but only by the grace of God. Listen, in the post-Christian America, real Christianity will thrive and survive and endure and persevere to the end. Why? Because Jesus sits on his throne. Amen? Amen? Brothers and sisters, just think about the grace the Lord has shown New Covenant Baptist Church and so many other churches around the area who continues to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was talking to my friend pastors uh, this morning, and they told me that 
about 10 new churches, gospel preaching churches, were planted in the past uh, two years of the pandemic. Can you believe it? All the news article says, Christianity in sharp decline. But the true church of Christ marches on. Amen? The church is the gospel made visible. The church, right now, what you are experiencing right now in this very gathering is no short of a miracle. This is the supernatural work of God. The church is God's display of his glory. The church is God's people set apart. The church is God's instrument to proclaim the good news of his kingdom so that more people will come to know him as Lord and Savior. May we, in God's grace, not by any man's efforts, not by any man's gifts, not by our own strengths, not by anything that we can contribute, may we, in God's grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit, proclaim him, represent him, and hope in him alone. To the end. Let's pray. Father, your word says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders strive in vain. Father, you are the Lord of this church. You are the Lord of every single professing Christian in this building. Father, there are so many reasons to be divided in our society. So many things that pull us apart and cause us to fight and debate and and bicker. But Father, in our weakness, in our weariness, help us to not cling to the things of this world or even ourselves. Help us to look to you. Help us to turn to you. Help us to humbly bow our knees and our faces to you. Help us to hope in you. Help us to find strength and comfort in you and joy in you. Father, you are our king. Help us to faithfully serve you until our last breath. Help us, Lord. Help New Covenant Baptist Church persevere by your grace with much joy for your glory that more people could come to know Jesus Christ as the one true Savior of the universe. We thank you, we praise you, bear much fruit through this word. In Jesus' name, amen.